Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for October 2nd, 2017. Today in the news, we'll be looking at a Men in Black spinoff. DC Cinematic Universe is changing course. We're going to be taking a look at a bunch of reboots, including Charlie's Angels, Flight of the Navigator. The Nice Guys is getting a female-driven TV reboot. And in our feature presentation, Jacob Hall returns to talk about the films he saw in the second half of Fantastic Fest 2017. With me on today's show are Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Y. Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. How's it going, guys? We're recording this on Friday afternoon. Are you ready for the weekend? Oh, yeah. Working for the weekend. Yes. And by the way, it's Ben's birthday, so happy birthday, Ben. Hey, thank you. Are you guys doing anything exciting over the weekend? Uh, I'm going to the Magic Castle with you tonight. Yes. Uh, And so I'll probably talk about that in my water cooler next week, so stay tuned. HT, any plans? Uh, I'm going to New York again this weekend for a uh, birthday party for my uncle. Nice. Very mm-hmm. cool. Okay, let's get into the news because this is a jam-packed edition of Slash Film Daily. Uh, let's start off with the Men in Black spinoff that is actually happening. It's going to arrive in summer 2019. HT, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? 
So Sony is expanding its Men in Black universe with a spin-off film without original stars Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones uh, on the screen. So this is going to be a spin-off film developed by Sony Pictures with Iron Man and Transformers Last Night screenwriters Matt Holloway and Art Markham penning the script. Um, we don't know much about the film except that they are aiming for a may 17th 2019 release date they have not nailed down a director yet they are currently in talks with uh top directors as they say in the report from deadline yeah and they're they're saying it's they want almost like a reboot of the franchise kind of like jurassic world rebooted Mm -hmm. jurassic park um and obviously this won't involve the the same people coming back uh what do you guys think of this ben are are you, are you do, do we need a men in black spinoff so this is something that's been talked about a lot before and they were previously talking about doing a men in black and 21 jump street crossover apparently that's still sort of on the back burner it's still that idea has not been officially killed yet but the by the way that that idea moving. sounds so horrible but so promising you know I mean? Sounds like, so bad it's good. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah, totally. And I think I would rather see that than just uh, a straight spinoff. But um, it seems like they are maybe potentially easing into getting a little crazier with that world. Um, and I think the Jurassic World comparison is probably apt here where they're going to try to do something and then maybe in a sequel um, bring back, you know, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones and some of the other people who have shown up previously in the the franchise. I would not be surprised if they lured them back in if this spinoff is successful. So more more Jurassic World than Ghostbusters. HT, you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, um, well, as long as they don't deal with time travel again, I'm fine with it. I <laughs> I think that the success of the Men in Black franchise ride, rode heavily on Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones' shoulders, so I don't know how a spinoff will take off, but if they're trying to go for a world-expanding, Jurassic World, new generation type of movie, who knows? It's still a big-name franchise, and people will still probably sit, uh, go to theaters to go see it, so they can do what they want, really. I think the big question for me is Will Smith's uh, epic Men in Black song going to be the theme song for this? And if if it is, who is going to be the pop star of this generation that's going to reboot that? Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber? (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, I I don't need this Men in Black spinoff. Okay, let's move from Men in Black to the DC cinematic uh, extended universe which is not even a thing uh, more on that in a second uh, there it seems like the DC entertainment is taking kind of a course correction with the future of not just the cinematic universe but uh, what they're doing and Ben you wrote in a whole article on slashfilm.com about this what do we know Yes, Vulture wrote a big sort of deep dive profile history into DC Entertainment, the company that is teamed up with Warner Brothers to make all of these DC superhero movies. And uh, apparently in the wake of Wonder Woman, the uh, DC Entertainment has adopted a new strategy and they are rethinking their concept of a connected cinematic universe. Um, Diane Nelson, who is the president of DC Entertainment, said, quote, Our intention, certainly moving forward, is using the continuity to help make sure nothing is diverging in a way that doesn't make sense, but there's no insistence upon an overall storyline or interconnectivity in that universe. So that quote is a little confusing to me, and it sort of makes this whole situation a little bit more confusing to realize that the term DC Extended Universe 
apparently originated as a joke from an Entertainment Weekly reporter and has since taken on a life of its own. And we all have been using this term as if it's an official thing for two years at this point. And in this Vulture article, the reporter learned that nobody internally at DC or Warner Brothers uh, knew where that name came from or or even <laughs> refers to any of their DC properties using that name or that nickname. So uh, that's a really bizarre thing. And I wrote up an article on Slash Film that you can read about the history of that and how that whole thing sort of came to be. But uh, as far as the actual... Um, strategy of DC, they are going to be, and we've talked about this before, they're going to be creating a new side label that uh, basically houses movies that uh, completely stand alone from any other narrative connection to any other DC movies. So the the, um, example we've been using is the Joker origin story film that Todd Phillips is supposed to be directing. So that one is going to be a different Joker, not Jared Leto, but Diane Nelson's comments here seem to indicate that even the movies that are in the, I don't know what you wouldn't want to call these terms, but in the sort of saga uh, Justice League (laughs) timeline kind of thing, don't necessarily have to be as connected as we once thought. So, uh, Peter, what do you think about this? It's weird because there's uh, some quotes in there, I think one from Jeff Johns, and it, it seems like one of the lessons they took from Wonder Woman is that people don't want a connected cinematic universe. They want standalone movies. And that to me sounds stupid. I mean, people obviously are love the Marvel films, which are very connected. Uh, they love Star Wars, which are very connected. Um, I think what people didn't like is, you know, it being forced, the forced connections of Batman versus Superman. You know, they they like it when it actually makes sense and feels organic. And, uh, I mean, I'm not against them doing standalone movies. Obviously, like, Star Wars is doing that. Um, but uh, it just seems like some of the observations that they... Some, some of the lessons that they learned from Wonder Woman aren't the lessons I would have learned from Wonder Woman. HT, <laughs> what do you think? I think that we are constantly hearing news about how DC is course correcting. And it's it's funny to me uh, what Peter was saying about how what they what the Warner Bros Warner Brothers executives learned from Wonder Woman was, you know, the standalone story sta- is the strong the strong appeal of that film. And they say it like it's this big revelation that people come for the story and the characters. And I think it's funny because, you know, that's what Marvel films have been doing for a while. That's what the Star Wars films have been doing. They're not just dependent on the crossover or the shoehorned in um, nods to other movies. It's a standalone movie first, and then it's part of a larger universe. And I think it's really funny that they're just learning that lesson now. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this this story to me is it's fascinating the thinking behind the Warner Brothers executives and everything just because it seems like they're coming on really late to these ideas that have been in the works with Marvel or for, or with other more successful cinematic universes. And, and you're so right about you saying that, you know, we've heard a lot of them course correcting it. It feels like they've been course correcting since 
you know, Man of Steel came out. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems like they haven't had a like specific kind of uh, outline of where they're going. It seems like it constantly be changing and constantly being evolving based on what they think audiences want. And uh, yeah, one last thing, one last point to bring up is yeah. that apparently um, Jeff Johns and Diane Nelson, who are sort of leading DC Entertainment, they. I guess did not have very much control over the movie side of the equation. They've been doing great things in TV and video games and comics and stuff like that in the past few years, but um, they've only recently sort of gained full creative control over the DC films. So Wonder Woman is sort of their first movie where um, you can sort of feel their particular fingerprints on it. So hopefully that's a good sign for the stuff that we have coming up uh, in the pipeline, including Justice League and Aquaman and whatever the hell else they decide to do in the years to come. For sure. Um, Moving on from that to a bunch of reboots, let's talk about this Charlie's Angels reboot. Uh, HT, you wrote the article for the site. Who are they looking at? So the Charlie's Angels reboot, uh, which Elizabeth Banks is helming, this is going to be her second feature film uh, as a as a director. Her first debut as a director was Pitch Perfect 2. And she's been attached to this movie for a, a while now. And the movie is reportedly eyeing Kristen Stewart and Lupita Nyong'o for the lead roles. We don't have a word about what the third lead role would be, but it, it apparently is a lot of big names. Uh, the biggest, of course, being... Stewart and Yango, who are incredibly talented, very um, unique picks, I think, for this franchise, which has always been sort of a campy action comedy series and now might take on a different veneer now that we have indie darling Kristen Stewart and Academy Award winning actress Lupita Nyong'o. I think part of the appeal of the Charlie's Angels movies is that they're fun, and I like Kirsten Stewart as an actress, but she kind of, like, is better in the kind of dramatic roles, I think. I don't think of her playing kind of a spunky, fun, you know, character. Um, and I'm actually a big fan of the first Mick G Charlie's Angel uh, reboot which was written by John August. That opening sequence, I'm not sure if you guys remember, but it takes place in a plane, and it's all in one shot, um, one single steady cam take, is so much fun. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm excited for some more Charlie's Angels. I, I actually was interested to see it as the TV show when it was rebooted a couple years back, but that was pretty horrible. Um, <laughs> uh, ben, what do you think? So, yeah, I mean, Kristen Stewart and Lupina Nyong'o are certainly a far cry from Drew Barrymore and Cameron Diaz and and Lucy Liu as far as, like, the bubbly personalities. So I'm very fascinated to see what Elizabeth Banks has in mind for this. Um, You know, Stewart, as an actress, tends to work really well with auteur directors and people who have... um, you know, very specific visions for the kinds of movies that they want to make. And uh, Banks seems like the most populist filmmaker that she's potentially will be working with uh, at this point in her career. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very <laughs> sort of uh, intrigued to see what that combination looks like on screen, assuming all of these deals actually get signed. And we, we should also mention that Elizabeth Banks, uh, who I love as an actress, um, the only film I've seen her direct is Pitch Perfect 2, and I love the first Pitch Perfect. I was so disappointed by the sequel. I did so. not like Pitch Perfect 2 either. Oh, so. <laughs> man, you guys. I, I thought Pitch Perfect 2 was better than the first one, so I'm, I'm the lone voice of dissent there. But. <laughs> Whoa. 
Okay, let's move on to another reboot. And this one is something that definitely hits my nostalgia. You know, it, it, it's definitely, I grew up uh, watching and rewatching on VHS the Disney movie Flight of the Navigator. I've been looking forward to them potentially rebooting this. Uh, they've been trying to get it off the ground for the last 10 years. Uh, Colin Trevorrow was in- involved, and now we have a new person involved, and Disney isn't involved anymore, right? Uh, yes. T- tell us about it, Ben. Yeah, so uh, Lucifer showrunner Joe Henderson is going to be writing a new script for a Flight of the Navigator reboot, which is different than, I guess, the Flight of the Navigator remake that they've been talking about doing with Disney for a long time. Now, um, I think it's Lionsgate and the Henson Company have the rights to this property. So it's weird because Disney, for the longest time, I think since 2009, has been talking about just doing a straight-up remake of this movie. But the term reboot from this article that we wrote about sort of makes it seem like they're either going to change the story a little bit and sort of keep the basic concept intact or maybe turn it into one of these legacy sequels where you know, it actually continues the story while doing a similar kind of thing. Um, Maybe even bringing back, uh, I think his name was Joey Kramer, who played the 12-year-old protagonist of the 1986 movie. So, um, yeah. They they better bring back Pee Wee Herman as the voice of uh, whatever that, the alien on on the ship. Yeah, and, you know, the Henson Company's involvement is probably promising for people who were fearing that a modern remake or a modern take on this might um, shave off a lot of the uh, charismatic edges of the original because, you know, with, like, too much CG or whatever. So the Henson Company, obviously, that comes hand-in-hand with practical effects and stuff like that. So um, I I don't know. We're we're still not sure about who's going to direct this, um, but the idea of a Flight of the Navigator reboot is um, something that's been, yeah, kicking around Hollywood for almost a decade at this point. So I'm sort of surprised we haven't seen it by now, but maybe this is the version that finally gets it off the ground. Also in the news, they are rebooting Shane Black's The Nice Guys as a female-driven TV series without Shane Black involved? I, I, I don't understand this at all. HT, you wrote this story for SlashFilm.com and you had the WTF header, which, yes, WTF. Yeah, this is an odd choice for a reboot, mostly because uh, The Nice Guys was a moderately well-reviewed film that had a pretty terrible box office um, haul, and it came out only last year. Uh, it starred Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe, and it was directed by Shane Black, and it was a very a very enjoyable uh, noir comedy with a sort of black comedy going on for it, um, and Apparently, Fox has picked up a gender-bent version of The Nice Guys called The Nice Girls. It's going to be written by Michael Diliberti, who wrote 30 Minutes or Less, and it will be a contemporary take on the feature film. So I'm guessing that means it will take place in modern day and not in the 1970s like The Nice Guys took place. So it seems mostly just inspired by the film, less than an actual reboot. So it's very... Wait, let, let, let's, let's get this straight. Okay, so the movie, which I liked a lot, mm-hmm. is good because of the Shane Black style, you know, comedy and his, his, you know, n- not not just like the dialogue, but his, just, just the style and visuals. And it's set in like that kind of 1970s gritty kind of L.A. So if you don't, if you take out Shane Black and you take out 
the 1970s. What makes this different than like Lethal Weapon, the TV show? I'm guessing they just didn't want to make another Lethal Weapon uh, reboot. And we're just like, let's call it The Nice Girls and base it off this other Shane Black buddy comedy uh, feature film that came out recently and has sort of the trappings of this story, but is still completely different. Yeah, I don't know. It just it seems very strange. I don't know why they just won't make an original series uh, that is female centric and will try to gender bend this particular story, which I will admit had a lot of casual misogyny kind of going throughout the film. Um, It kind of contributed to the whole lewd 1970s gritty neo-noir thing going on. And um, I'm yeah, not even know. sure just... how you adapt that to like a, what is the female driven version of that. So the thing that I can think of off the top of my head is maybe Ryan Gosling's character's daughter is a grown up protagonist of this. And she's a P.I. at at this point. And that would explain the modern setting because she was sort of like a mm. a young P.I. in training kind of in the in the first movie. So or in the the only movie, the movie. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. It's definitely a strange choice. And I bring up Lethal Weapon. It's like if anybody's watched the Lethal Weapon show on Fox, you know, the the miles of difference there are between that and Shane Black's, you know, sort of rat-a-tat um, R-rated movie. So it's this is a weird choice. Yeah, I think other than Limitless, this is the first time I've seen a feature film be rebooted into a television version so soon. I don't yeah. think there's been another one like this. It's It's just an odd choice. Yeah, especially for a movie that didn't really make that much money at the box office. Like, yeah. why, it's not like you're you're really banking on name recognition or anything because the movie didn't do that well. I don't yeah. know. It's weird. It's almost like Hollywood is so afraid of original ideas that they're willing to bank on reboots of things that didn't do well versus the original ideas. Because, yeah. oh, maybe someone has some name recognition of the nice guys, even though it yeah. didn't do that well. Um, speaking of movies not doing that well... The Flatliners remake hits theaters uh, this weekend, and uh, so far it has zero positive reviews. You wrote the article for SlashFilm.com. What do we know, Ben? Yes. Uh, it <laughs> The Flatliners movie, which a lot of people are even surprised is out this week because it has gotten so little uh, attention as far as like trailers and TV spots and stuff like that, uh, has sort of limped into theaters. It has a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes as of this recording. Uh, it should be noted that there are only 12 reviews in at this point, which is a pretty small number, but they decided not to screen this movie for critics at all. So the people who have reviewed it are the people who woke up this morning or went and saw a late show last night or something and paid to see it so that could contribute a little bit maybe to the film's um sort of overall negative uh reviews that it has at this moment but i think for the most part people are saying this is a pretty bad sort of flatly executed boring bland uh take on this story so it's a remake or actually it's not even really a remake it's it's weird it's like um it's a, a spiritual remake, but it's technically a sequel because Kiefer Sutherland's character from the 1990 original movie shows up in the new movie, I guess. So, But it basically tells the same story of a, a group of medical students who essentially kill themselves temporarily and then bring themselves back to life just to like uh, experience the high of being on the other side. So, um, yeah, I guess it's just uh, it had a $20 million budget, but it's not expected to do very well. And these reviews are not going to help it. 
I, I guess the question is how many of these reviews and how many of the box office reports are going to use a, you know, uh, a flat pun in the in their headlines. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Flatlanders so falls flat. Um, so yes. Uh, well, that does it for the news. Uh, b- before we get into the feature presentation, we got I got to leave you guys here. You can find more of Ben at Ben Pears on Twitter. You can find more HT at H Tran Bowie on Twitter in the Millennial Falcon podcast. And now for our feature presentation, we're bringing on Jacob Hall to talk about the second half of Fantastic Fest 2017. How's it going, Jacob? I am a very tired person, Peter. Uh, it's been a really, really good film festival. I know we've discussed the controversies on the site before. We wrote about it at length recently in a statement we can link to in the show notes. But even if you are able to look past all that, this is the strongest lineup this festival's had in years. And it's been a, it's been wild. I, I've had a great time in terms of purely watching movies. And you've been moving at the same time, which is, <laughs> I don't know how you pulled that off. Yes, I am. I'm recording you from a mostly empty kitchen. Um, I'm sleeping on the floor tonight due to a weird moving scheduling error. It's been it's been weird. It's been it's been quite a, it's been quite a ride. <laughs> okay, so let's get into it. Um, what is the best movie you saw in the second half of Fantastic Fest? Oh, in the second half, um, that would probably be it, it, it's tossed up between two movies that couldn't be more different. So I'll go ahead and start with. Uh, Mike Flanagan's Gerald's Game. It's a Stephen King adaptation of a 1992 novel. And by the time you listen to this, you may have already seen it because it hits Netflix on Friday, September 29th. It is a Netflix original movie uh, made by a streaming service for the streaming service. And it's for years, it's a book that many King fans thought was unadaptable because the basic plot is that a uh, woman named Jessie is handcuffed to a bed by her husband during a weekend getaway. Um, things go wrong. The husband dies, and, and the entire book is her handcuffed to a bed dealing with inner and possibly outer demons that uh, threaten her in some way. And Mike Flanagan, who co-wrote and directed it, he's a director I've liked for a long time. Uh, he directed uh, Oculus Hush, another Netflix horror movie. The shockingly good uh, Ouija Origin of Evil, the really good sequel to the really bad uh, Ouija movie. <laughs> um, and this is a really strong movie, Peter. Um, it is, he, get, he gets around the one room location by having uh, her dead. Oh, Jesse's played by uh, Carly Gugino, um, you may remember from Sin City, amongst other things. And her husband's played by Bruce Greenwood. And they get around the psychological internal nature of the book by having both Cargino play a version of herself who appears to her as a vision. So she's talking to herself and to a vision of her husband, Bruce Greenwood. So we're essentially like acting as parts of her subconscious as she tries to figure out how to get out of this increasingly horrible situation. And I'm really glad Netflix made this because I feel like other studios would have balked at a movie that's set in one bedroom and the entire plot device is hinged on a woman being handcuffed to a bed as she tries to escape. But it's such an audience movie. So see this one with friends. There's a scene that had the audience screaming and like crawling into their seats. It would, if you've read the book, you probably know the moment I'm talking about. And it's just, this, and for an, it's this incredible horror movie. It is scary. It's intense, but it's also really moving and it has this surprisingly big heart and it, um, it occasionally falters, I think, maybe in the home stretch where it tries to lay it on a little thick with 
trying to get drive home thematic points, but it's ultimately about um, women and the victims who rise up to face their abusers and um, overcome uh, the monsters in their lives, both both literal ones and the ones that have deep have been buried deep down in their psyches. And considering all the controversies that have played Fantastic Fest this year, I felt like the audiences found it like a relief to watch. Like this is a movie that we needed right now. We, a unpleasant, nasty genre movie, which is pure Fantastic Fest, but also one yeah. that was all about how powerful a woman can be um, when faced with abuse. And uh, it's a really good movie. And if you, if you haven't checked it out on Netflix yet, by the time you listen to this, it's worth your time. So uh, Dark Tower and Mist Be Damned, the King of Sons, is is in full effect. Yes, um, and Gerald's game has a, has a Dark Tower reference, Peter. It has a Dark Tower reference and a Dolores Claiborne reference. It has um, it maintains all the Stephen King pick the universe stuff that from the book, and it does it better than Dark Tower did. It's kind of insane. <laughs> so, so what what else did you see at Fantastic Fest that you really liked? The other movie I loved, and uh, our own Chris Evangelista saw this and reviewed it from the Toronto International Film Festival, is uh, Armando Iannucci's The Death of Stalin. And you may remember Armando Iannucci because he created. Um, the TV show The Thick of It, its spiritual sequel movie um, In the Loop, which is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And more recently, he was showrunner and creator on the first four seasons of HBO's Veep. And he left and made this movie, and it's very much his traditional style, very um, coarse dialogue, very coarse, very funny dialogue, very political satire. Um, much of the humor comes from people saying horrible things to each other and saying it very quickly. And, and there's a certain amount of shock value in his dialogue. But while uh, his previous work has been often about how can we get the biggest laughs just out of people being horrible to each other, Death of Stalin, as the title implies, takes place in 1953 in the Soviet Union where uh, Joseph Stalin has just died. And it's about his inner circle all grasping for power in his wake. And what's kind of insane about it, and he talked about this a little bit in the Q&A after the movie, is how much of it is actually true to life, how much of the research they did, the movie realized that, oh, we don't need to make this funny or add comedy because this was so ridiculous, uh, we can just kind of portray it as is in many cases. And, that, and it's, it's even more ridiculous because you have uh, actors like Jason Isaacs, uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, Jeffrey Tambor, all these British and American actors using their natural accents but playing Russian characters. It doesn't mean, even though the costumes and location are Russian, doesn't even bother to do accents. It kind of adds to the absurdity of it. But since things are genuinely horrible in this time, in this time, um, in this corner of the world, the movie doesn't shy away from the brutality of it. Uh, it's a very dark comedy in that it deals with genocide, deals with mass arrests and mass torture and mass executions. But it is the characters who are doing this are so petty and evil and stupid, and it feels. And it, the whole point of the movie feels like. Here is what happens when really dumb, really evil people are allowed to take power in a country. And I feel, and I feel like it's arriving at just the right time for a lot of people. Um, what, what else did you see at the festival that you really loved? Okay. Well, and there, uh, I'll go a little more quickly in this next few. I saw 1922 which is another Stephen King Netflix adaptation directed. <laughs> yeah. How many Stephen directed, King's thing, things did you see at Fantastic Fest? Uh, just the two, just Gerald's Game 1922. 1922 isn't quite as good as Gerald's Game. Um, it's based on a Stephen King novella, 
about 123-page novella from his novel uh, Full Dark, No Stars. And it's a very straightforward um, gothic horror story. Uh, you kind of get like an Edgar Allan Poe vibe from it. Uh, less of a less of a gnarly in-your-face experience than uh, than it or even Gerald's game, but it's about a um, farmer played by Thomas Jane doing this great weird performance, really great old-school like long-lost Nebraska accent as a farmer who murders his wife and and discovers that like this sets up a, ch- a chain reaction of events that tears his life apart uh, over the course of the 1922, hence the title of the movie, and. It's a very good movie. It's not necessarily scary or violent or or um, not, it's not going to like have you jumping out of your seat like a lot of Stephen King movies are. Um, but it's a really solid, moody, um, well-crafted, well-acted uh, drama that's just unsettling enough to give you some good horror vibes. But it actually is an, a, a nice uh, palate cleanser after it and after Gerald's game. It definitely feels like, oh, this is Stephen King movies can be so much more because they're not just horror stories. This is far more to the Shawshank stand by me side of things, even though there is some spooky stuff in it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a good reminder of the seeming Renaissance is going to hopefully be so much bigger and more interesting than just a good horror movie every so often. I'm calling it the King of Sons. And it also seems like, um, fantastic fest this year had a lot of promotion for ne- upcoming Netflix releases. It seemed like, uh, there, there was a heavy amount of them. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, Gerald's game, off the top of my head, Gerald's Game, um, 1922, and Wheelman are the three ones that I saw. Uh, I can't remember if there are any others, but I know that Netflix is a, is sometimes cagey with giving the films at festivals because I feel I feel like their response seems to be people are going to watch it on Netflix anyway, so why should we risk bad buzz giving you to a fe- giving over to a festival? But all three of those movies played really well with the past best audiences. People seem to really dig all three of them. And it made me wish that people could see these movies on the big screen, which is not always an option with Netflix movies. It does but, seem uh, weird that, like, you know, they have Duncan Jones' next movie, Mute. And I feel like Fantastic Fest would have been the best place to premiere that movie. Um, but we still don't know when that's coming out, I don't think. Yeah, who, who knows? Maybe next year <laughs> we'll get to see it. Who knows when, when that's yeah. coming out? I want to give a uh, quick shout out to uh, two documentaries uh, Haunters, The Art of the Scare. It is a documentary directed by uh, John uh, Schnitzner about um, professional haunted house um, operators focusing on a few key uh, figures, including a guy who runs an extreme haunted house, requires a waiver, a professional scare actress who's dedicated her entire life to um, acting in haunted houses and has suffered serious injuries due to um, uh, her craft. And it's not a great doc, um, but if the subject matter interests you, it is fascinating. It's very good. I interviewed the director and that will go up next week in the site because the movie's going to VOD next week. And he says he would love to do an entire TV series where each episode focuses on a different American haunted house attraction. And if this sounds appealing to you at all, it's, it is worth checking out. Like, if you have no interest in haunted houses, you don't, you're the kind of person who has, doesn't get into the Halloween spirit every October, you can skip it. But if this is the kind of thing that appeals to you in any way, it's a really good movie. And... The other documentary, and I know I'm one of the went after. I know that. By the way, this, this, oh, is yeah. a, this is a film that it sounds like something I want to see. Um, there, there was a movie released by one of the Elmo Drafthouse guys, The American Scream. Did you ever see that? Yeah, The American Scream. I, I like American Scream a lot, and they're actually good companion pieces because Haunters is about guys who are are mostly about people who 
are operating in the big leagues, kind of kind of people make haunted houses that uh, work for haunted houses that get, are controversial or get headlines or are more well known. Whereas American Scream was about people literally making haunted houses for in their backyards um, as passion projects, um, and they're hoping that maybe one day be able to make it their full time occupation. So, yeah. and I, re- I remember really stuff. liking that movie. It's from the guy that did a uh, best worst movie, uh, Michael Paul Stevenson. Um, and I think it's produced by Zach Carlson who used to program movies at the draft house. Um, and, uh, I really love that movie and I'm, I'm a big fan. I've become a big fan of these haunted houses, uh, since moving to LA and doing Halloween horror nights. And now I, you know, I've been done not scary farm and I'm, I'm still working on this piece for the site. That's going to compare all of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've ne- I've never been to any of these independent ones and, uh, I'm excited to see this movie. Yeah, and I think um, Universal and Not Scary Farm will get referenced in, in the uh, movie. It's interesting, interviewing the director, um, I was fascinated by the interview, and I hope you guys enjoy it when that goes up, because his original cut was four and a half hours long, and it went into like every single major American haunted house you can get into, including Universal. But when he showed it to people who weren't haunted house fans, um, they got bored and said, focus on these three characters. So the final cut, which is made for um, people who may not be haunted house fans, is more about the most interesting people as opposed to an entire look at the entire industry. But that cut does exist. It actually is out there. Hmm. So maybe one day we'll, we'll get to see that. So uh, w- what else did you see that you liked? Oh, yeah. This, the second doc I wanted to mention, I, I want to mention this because I think that our own Brad Oman is excited for it. I think he'd really dig it. And this is uh, Neil Berkeley's Gilbert. It is a documentary about Gilbert Gottfried, the uh, comedian. He's probably best known to people these days for being the voice of Iago in Aladdin. But he's had a stand-up career going back decades. And he was also uh, the voice not... of that, uh, what was it, the, the Affleck duck. Yep, yeah. and that, which was a, an, an, an example of um, a early social media uh, pile-on. He lost that job. It's something that was, is, is chronicled in the movie, and I don't, I don't want to say too much. But he's very famous for his on-stage persona, which is very abrasive, very loud, very crude. And what's great about this documentary is that it takes us into his day-to-day life in a way that makes you understand um, how he functions as a real person, like how much of his incredibly loud trademark voices and exaggeration that he doesn't talk like that all the time. Uh, you, you, there's a lot of time spent with his wife, who is this lovely woman. Uh, you, you, you have great chemistry. You, you understand the relationship. And, and so much of the fun of the movie is understanding how they deal with each other's quirks and how to make each other better people. It's really one of the healthiest depictions of marriage I saw <laughs> in a genre film festival this week. <laughs> it's a really sweet, really nice movie. And Gilbert Gottfried was there for the Q&A and, and um, he seemed both proud of and embarrassed by the movie. And I get, and I get that reaction because you watch it and you feel like, oh, I, I get who this guy is. But it also really gets under his skin and really lets you see... Like the kind of, who is the kind of guy who go on stage and tell the jokes he does? It's the kind of person who's so sensitive and so easily wounded by life that he needs to be crude in order to de- have a defense mechanism against things that cause him pain. And it's really lovely and just a genuine portrait of someone who I didn't know I'd be so interested in learning more about. And it's I'm, I'm not sure about the release date. Maybe we can add that to the show notes. Um, but it, it is coming. It is being. It is going to be available. In the next few months, I believe, and it's even if you're not a Gilbert Godfrey fan, if you're a comedy fan or even a fan of good docs, it's, it's, it's a good one. 
Yeah, there, there's a couple other docs that feature Gilbert Gottfried that I would highly recommend if you haven't seen. Uh, the first being uh, one uh, produced by Penn Jillette, uh, one half of Penn & Teller, called The Aristocrats, about, the, I guess, the dirtiest joke in stand-up comedy history. And uh, he famously, uh, did, he, he's kind of the inciting incident for that movie. And uh, there, there was a movie a couple of years ago at Sundance. It was one of my favorite movies of the year. And, and that movie's Life Animated about uh, this kid with autism that basically learns to communicate and live life through his love of Disney movies and Gilbert Gottfried is a part of that and he, he's great in it. Uh, I guess the last movie I want to mention, this is actually from day two of the fest, but I forgot to mention it during our first podcast about Fantastic Fest this year. Yeah. And I really want to talk about it because it's, it's probably my second or third favorite movie of the festival is uh, Thelma. It's a Norwegian film by Joaquin Trier. It's actually Norway's submission for the Academy Awards this year and I would love to see it get a nomination because it's great. And it is essentially about a young woman who goes to college, uh, played by uh, Ellie Harbo. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And she starts, as she gets away from her uh, religious family and starts being able to meet new people and find, experiment with new lifestyles, you start realizing that um, she has unique powers. She has reality-altering powers in some way. And they're triggered by uh, by all kinds of things, but most notably by her discovering her sexual feelings for uh, another woman. And so it's essentially if Carrie was a Norwegian art house movie, um, it would probably look like this, but it's in a, in a festival that was, that was full of really great LGBTQ movies. I wrote about this um, on Twitter. I'm hoping to write about a little more of my festival wrap up post next week. It is a genuinely powerful and, um, no holds barred depiction of um, of how coming out can tear a family apart, especially a religious family, and how and how a young person has to deal with the consequences of do I pick my family or my feelings? Because does it with a girl with psychic powers and and all kinds of um, horrifying imagery, but it's a really good, beautifully acted and intense uh, Norwegian movie that just so happens to have um psychic powers in it and i'm hoping people discover it bunch of movies to add to your your wish list your you know your list of movies to look out for and uh jacob will have after he's done moving <laughs> he will have a whole list of his favorite films up at slash film.com and we'll link i will that. and i will give you a tease about that the movie i talked about last time uh joseph Kahn's bodied is still my favorite film in the festival and it won the audience award today, which is the uh, award when, when everybody leaves the theater, they vote on a ballot saying, like, give a movie a one through a ten. And it won. And this is the second audience award it's won. It also won the audience award at the at Toronto a few weeks ago. So that's two audience awards for this movie, but no distributor yet. And Joseph Collins on Twitter is saying that the studios are simply, they claimed that there's no audience for it and, they're, and, no, and nobody's going to want to see it. And, and he's saying that, Two audience awards later, it's becoming clear that the studios are just kind of scared by this movie because it is in your face and offensive and brutally honest. And but also, as I think these two awards show, really funny and really crowd pleasing, and going to get people talking in the right ways. So of all the movies I've mentioned, uh, that's the one that most of the movies I've mentioned you'll be able to see. Everything I've talked about today, 
at the end of the day, are things that come to theaters in some capacity. The body does not, and I don't know. I, I just wonder why something, do something like Netflix wouldn't be interested in a movie like that. It's a really good question, and it comes back down to the issue of um, I would love it to be an audience movie for people. Seeing it with the crowd was one of the great film experiences of my life, uh, Peter. Uh, the crowd was so into people were cheering and laughing and gasping and got a standing ovation at the end. Uh, I, I would have fun watching it at home again. And I hope if Netflix or Amazon or there's, if, that, if that's what it takes to get people to see it, that's great. But I'll, uh, it's, it's, a, it's like an experience I'm going to treasure. I'm never going to forget when I saw Bodied for the first time. So it's always that weird issue where, like, yeah, I'm one of the very few people who ever got to see Gerald's game in a theater. And you'll, you'll either watch it at home and enjoy it. But, you know, I kind of wish I, people could share in that movie's most incredible moments. And Body of is all incredible moments. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, bring, it, should, it, on, and yeah. it should be noted that Netflix isn't against doing films in theaters. They're against doing it of having a release window. They want to do day and date. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the multiplexes don't see any value in that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to be fair. So... My whole thing is that if you have, if you are in a situation where you can see Body, whether it's another film festival or when it gets distribution and it's available, I can't recommend seeing another movie this year more. I think maybe Only Get Out is the movie I've loved as much this year. And I think I love them both because they're both incredibly fearless, Molotov cocktails of movies that, like, I feel like they're, they're thrown to the room and they're here to antagonize you and ask questions and push you around and talk about all the things that nobody wants to talk about and they do it while being incredibly entertaining. For sure. Jacob, where can we find more of your work online? Oh, um, starting back on Monday, I am back on slashfilm.com every single day in full capacity after the past week of uh, Fantastic Fest. <laughs> but also, uh, if you want to hear me complain and moan about moving, you can follow me at Jacob S. Hall on Twitter. Uh, you can find more of my work at SlashFilm and on SlashFilm.com. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and television and deeper dives into the great features from SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can subscribe to SlashFilm Daily on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, we are very much still experimenting with this podcast, so send us an email, peter at slashfilm.com. It can be a question for the mailbag, or it could just be some feedback. Uh, if you love the show, though, please go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. That helps us out a lot, and spread the word. Tell your friends. Tweet about this. Uh, Facebook about it. Uh, help us out, and uh, you know uh, we can always use more listeners. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>